Good day and welcome to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics. Today is January 18th, 2020. I'm your host, Hank Felsman. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast where we force ourselves through the constriction of this podcast medium to talk about the difficult yet critically important topic of climate change. Difficult because it makes you confront your own mortality and the insignificance of your individual actions and behavior. And that's not a confrontation you want to make at parties or with your friends, family, your girl, when you're trying to unwind. And yet critically important, because if we never have these confrontations and repress the conversation, repress the truth, pacifying ourselves with sheer entertainment, then we will be haunted by a guilty conscience destined to nag us for as long as we choose to live on complicit in ignorance. And that guilty conscience will say, why didn't you do more? Why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you scream off the rooftops or, better yet, into a microphone, broadcast it for all the world to hear? Why didn't you? And so, here, we do just that. We scream. Gabe, do you have a sound effect for a scream? Ah! Okay, that is our guest today. Uh, he's a dear, dear friend of mine, uh, an educator, philosopher, musician, cat lover, and climate change activist, dual citizen of both New York City and New Jersey State. He came here all the way from Brooklyn. He is Gabe Gordon. But first, we've got to take a moment to thank our sponsor, the new Dream Box from Ponzi Technologies Incorporated. For just $99, you can place a Ponzi Dream Box in your room. And in 20 years, all your dreams will come true, guaranteed, or you get your money back. You get $99 back in 20 years. The all-new dream box from Ponzi. May all your dreams and blessed Ponzi dreams come true. And of course, we'd be remiss to forget our sponsor, Rollin' Cases, the most rocking suitcases on wheels. Rollin' Cases, whether you're taking a carbon-free voyage across the Atlantic Ocean like that total badass Greta Thunberg. I mean, I mean, how badass was that, Gabe? Not only taking a carbon-free boat across the sea, but also packing all her belongings in a carbon-free rolling suitcase. Or whether you're just flying coach to Anchorage to catch some glaciers while they're still here. Kind of like how you might see the Rolling Stones while they're still alive and rocking. Rolling cases are the suitcases on wheels for you and your life's journey. Rolling cases. And with that, ladies, gentlemen, listeners old and new, I bring you Gabe Gordon. So, Gabe, welcome to Climate Change Therapy. Um, Thanks, Hank. Yeah, you were saying you're honored to be sharing this platform with, with Ponzi Dream Technologies. Yeah, it's a dream come true. Yeah, it's a, it seems like a reasonable... <laughs> I see what you did there, to quote a friend. Uh, but it seems like a reasonable deal. Pay $99 today, all your dreams come true. And if they don't, you get $99 back in 20 years. Yeah, it seems like there's just <laughs> nothing to lose. <laughs> Nothing, nothing. Uh, the question is, I mean, the only thing to lose is, I guess, what if your dreams change? You know, like, let's say, let's say you get a dream box when you're 10, and then your dream comes true, and you are, you know, uh, working on a, I don't want to, I don't want to say, I don't want to go there. Gabe, uh, <laughs> I don't want to st- uh, stamp on, stump on, stomp on uh, any 10-year-old's dreams. All right, your dreams are perfectly valid. 
Uh, well, get- that, that nuanced discussion already forced Ponzi to pull their sponsorship. So, <laughs> Gabe, introduce yourself for the climate change therapy audience, please. Save, Hi, save uh, me from myself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabe Gordon. I've known Hank uh, since, uh, so probably over 20 years now. And uh, I work in arts education in a not, for a nonprofit in New York City. Mm-hmm. And um, I am a part of a, an amazing arts community friends and family and um, I think about climate change and the environment and the crisis quite a bit yeah great um, and w- in fact you were on this podcast once before about a year ago um, when we last talked you mentioned going to a, a climate change kind of uh, an extinction rebellion event was the organization that you mentioned um, March on Rockefeller Center it was yeah that's right yeah um, so are you st- are still involved with with uh, activism in that regard, can you give us the, the lay of the land in the, the New York City, uh, the, the front lines, so to speak, sure. of, of activism? Yeah, since we last uh, met and I was on the show in your old studio, um, I was uh, just really sort of like putting both feet into the, um, the sort of like climate action uh, opportunities in New York City. And my friend and I were sort of co-enabling each other to, to jump into the fray um, and had heard about this organization, Extinction Rebellion, XR, uh, which really sort of came to popularity um, and, and scale in London um, when there was a lot of uh, public um, acts of disobedience and disruption to uh, force local government to declare a climate emergency. And so um, the New York City chapter of XR has been running uh, actions uh, for the last several years, to my understanding. And... Um, Last winter, my friend and I uh, went to an action where we marched uh, from the bottom of Central Park to Rockefeller Plaza to the ice skating rink, and um, we participated in a die-in where we lied down and um, had messages on on signs, Mm -hmm. and uh, some of the lead organizers actually hung a banner up over the uh, the big golden statue above Mm -hmm. the rink. Um, We cheered as he got arrested, and... (laughs) It was it was really invigorating uh, and energizing for me to be a part of that. Um, yeah. Did and, you think you would yeah. get arrested at the you know before you joined them? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I had been thinking about and feeling may, possibly open to exploring um, being arrested, and one of the things I appreciated about XR <laughs> yeah. is that um, they are first of all very clear uh, with folks who are planning to participate in an action to. to say to you, you know, what is your um, sort of comfortable level of risk of arrest? Mm. And so um, the action sort of unfolds in stages where there's a a peaceful march down the street and the the risk of arrest is low there. And then there's like an action where there's like a die-in or some public demonstration and the risk of arrest is maybe slightly higher. And then there's like a core team that's performing some action that's pretty much guaranteed mm-hmm. arrest for most of the participants mm-hmm. what um, is the citation what law are you breaking specifically oh that's a great question you um, don't know. no when you got arrested what did they say they were arresting you for i didn't get arrested oh when the no. other people at the march got did. arrested um probably the the guy who hung the sign on the statue was probably like uh either some combination of trespassing and mm. and defiling a public mm-hmm. you know property yeah or private pro- pro- property. or private property yeah the rockefellers are powerful people 
to this day. Yeah. And this march was um, mostly people our, our age, kind of millennials? It's a good question. Yeah. The, the XR movement in New York City that I've experienced, you're just full of great questions. Know, two for two. I got to stop saying that. We're, <laughs> we're, we're doing an interview. You're very polite. You're very polite. It's okay. It's my show. You can say it on every question. Can't you? Okay. Go. Uh, so, so everyone, so we're anyway, all millennials. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, the, I was surprised when I first went to like a, um, a general meeting to explain about Extinction Rebellion to see. Actually, um, it seemed like there were a lot of older generation, almost like boomer, maybe even like mm-hmm. hippie, young hippie. Uh, now older adults like, like Jane Fonda types yeah like Jane Fonda yeah okay. uh, exactly and um, I was surprised that there weren't more young people and uh, mm. it was it was fairly older generation probably you know middle class and um, a lot of you know a lot of white people part of the chapter at that time um, and in the action I would say it was about the same it was very it was very diverse in terms of age mm-hmm. Um and then since then, I'll just say that uh, my friend and I went to one other action um, that was organized by XR um, to sort of to close, to shut down the uh, car entrance to the Brooklyn Bridge uh, at City Hall on the Manhattan side. Hmm. Uh, so we were um, there at the sort of at the juncture where organizers who were risking arrest were um, hanging up banners and die- doing die-ins in the street to block traffic. And we were on the sidelines chanting holding signs helping uh, other protesters mm-hmm. and and just uh, documenting it my my friend is a journalist was this during the the climate summit at the UN that uh, Greta Thunberg was this in was town for? this was different um, okay. i'm trying to remember when i i think this was before the big climate summit but um, yeah and in in general yeah. it was sort of a similar experience for me and my friend i think talking after we felt like it was exciting to be there. We didn't yet quite feel like we were ready to jump into the the arrest category. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, and another thing I'll just share about XR is that um, we were encouraged to attend like a, a sort of training workshop before the action, mm-hmm. um, just to talk through what it means to be a part of an action where there might be um, police resistance mm-hmm. or even counter protesters. Mm. Uh, and while I didn't experience any of that in the, um, action, it was definitely really helpful for me as someone new to participating in actions to sort of have an idea of what could happen and some best practices around that. What kind of groups represent the counter protesters for climate change? I know you said you didn't experience it, but what kind of groups were they, um, you know, warning you, you might, um, you might see. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we practiced, so we did some role-playing scenarios where there was someone who is a climate change denier and, and voicing that loudly mm-hmm. and, and aggressively is it to the like, protesters. Re- like religious groups, conservative religious groups? We didn't really get into their motivations, mm-hmm. their motives. We were just thinking about the situation and how to keep ourselves safe and keep the action going. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it, it was just really insightful. I, I, it reminded me that I, there's so much more I want to learn about, um, activist, you know, action, uh, work. Mm-hmm. Um, but since then I haven't, uh, I haven't been to, um, another XR event recently. Hmm. It's, it's fascinating. Cause I, before the, sh- the show, I was talking to you a little bit about how 
the conversation seems to have changed in in the last years and certainly the last five years and and 10 years i remember when i was last living in new york it was occupy wall street which was and there was a lot of noise about income inequality the 99 percent um and this is this is during the the obama years even um so it it was almost outside of politics it was just it, it was just a you know and i feel like we would also be having these climate marches you know, even if Hillary Clinton was in the White House too, um, because of the the problem has become so uh, so egregious. Um, have you kind of sensed a sort of like upswing um, in uh, the kind of like national consciousness about uh, how important this is? This seemed like I guess my question is seven years ago, you know, income inequality was the kind of number one issue that. Uh, people were were protesting in New York, Occupy Wall Street, and now would you say climate change is the is the number one issue people are are protesting, or are there other issues that are st- are still being protested uh, more so than that? Yeah the the climate march, the climate summit led by Greta Thunberg was certainly of huge scale mm-hmm. uh, across the world, and especially in New York, it was really. Um, pretty stunning to be a part of. Um, and, and not to say that, uh, I had any expectations of, of a specific outcome other, other than just demonstrating, uh, the scale of public opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly that was like, that was pretty, pretty large. Um, I think that in general over the last decade, there seems to be more of like public discourse around the, the severity and urgency Mm-hmm. of climate change and if i had to sort of like like break that down and make meaning of it i would probably say that has to do with the fact that there have been uh scientist reports that have stressed sort of um the severity the direness and the direness yeah. and the um and have even come out and said like we didn't realize it was this bad it's this bad mm-hmm. uh and and, and yeah. also the natural disasters yeah the fires Absolutely. in California that people in, within the city you you see fires on on the, the horizon, hurricanes in in Houston, um, you know major cities that have gotten hit uh, like that. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Um, and I I think also on that I w- I was um, listening to an interview the other day that was um, the discussion around sort of. Uh, what has made this discourse more visible and mm-hmm. natural disasters certainly are uh, tangibly catch the eye. They're, they're newsworthy. They have right. huge tolls and especially huge tolls financially for mm-hmm. those areas. Uh, but I also remember in the interview, it was stressed that, um, that like, uh, you, do you know yet what, who I'm referencing? No, no, not I'm all. referencing a past episode of, uh, <laughs> of climate change therapy. <laughs> oh, say more. Block radius. Please say more. This is a podcast that you are listening <laughs> to right now. And uh, a past episode was with, um, was it Miles? Okay, yeah. Um, so Miles was... <laughs> yeah, go on. This is so self-referential. I love this. Go on. Um, if I remember correctly, I heard Miles was saying that even though natural disasters are huge newsworthy events that cost lots of money, yeah. um, that things like uh, heat, um, extreme heat in, in cities can lead to more human toll um, and, and mm-hmm. maybe over time start to add up and don't get the same type of attention of a, an urgency of a, a huge catastrophe. 
Yeah. So uh, certainly the natural disasters have helped bring the discourse like more frequent and more front and center. Mm-hmm. And also it, it's just... Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's the heat. Not the whole story. And how it also the um the day-to-day weather changes you know like last weekend felt like it was 70 degrees in philadelphia in in january and today it's snowing um i went hiking uh actually in the wissahickon and no jacket and there was no leaves on the tree because it's the dead of winter so you can see through the whole forest down to the the valley down the valley to the creek and it was just so odd to be able to see to be walking a forest with no leaves and having no jacket it was kind of mind-boggling and i think people are starting to notice that that these fluctuations in temperature in weather the fluctuation we say weather is not the same thing as climate but um the, the changes in weather um are an impact of climate uh, of climate change and people are noticing that so they are saying like oh it's, it's nice to enjoy a 70 degree day in january but at the same time like it's a little disconcerting because Things are different than how you've experienced them your whole life, even as recently as 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Winters were cold and summers were hot. And now you really, you can't, you can't predict it until the day before, it seems. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it often, I feel like you're right. It takes viscerally experiencing the newness, the change to really like come to grips with it and to see that it's happening. Mm Mm-hmm. The day-to-day. The day-to-day. Uncertainty. Um, yeah. But I, I guess the reason... I'm always looking for reasons for hope. Um, and they they get they get harder and harder to find the, the longer that we, we put off some of the, the policies we have talked about on this show. Ending fossil fuel subsidies, you know, in, investing more in whether it's it's green new deal type policies uh, or even market-based policies like a carbon tax the more we put off that it seems like the hope dwindles but at the same time the fact that it does seem to me that conversation is growing around around these issues is is some reason for hope like we're going to be late on all these things but better late than never is kind of what I'm starting to feel in a way. So there's going to be consequences, but I think we're going to come around to things eventually. Um, yeah. And if, if there, if, if there is a, a counter to, to that, I think hopeful philosophy, it's that the next generation, the generation born now will have what has been reported uh, by some as eco fatigue, <laughs> like there's mm. they're tired of everybody talking about it in a way um I, i've heard i, I could this, imagine this that. as a thing yeah i feel eco fatigue <laughs> okay so it's so it, the problem is not necessarily a lack of conversation it's a fatigue at the kind of conversation that's that's yeah, been had. It's, it's like a it's a hopelessness it, i i was um i work in, uh in support of arts programs in public schools in new mm. york and uh, a couple days before the climate summit um, I was aware that a lot of young people were going to be showing up. It was largely young people organized, right? Uh, and I asked the middle schoolers, uh, are you going to go to the climate summit? And they said, why should we? It's not going to change anything. And and that's just that's like heartbreaking. so heartbreaking. And um, I can I can understand that even if those same kids are feeling our voice, you know, speaking up 
on the day to day and talking about it and um, are aware of uh, the ways that that people in power are like screwing over their futures. Mm-hmm. It's it's understandable that they would be like, well, what can we do? Yeah, I was thinking about this a little bit earlier today, but it's almost like voting. We have to teach, um, you know, the next generation and ourselves and this and on all the older generations as well that you know individual lifestyle changes. While mathematically they really they really are as insignificant as a single vote, but it's still a kind of a kind of duty and obligation to you know be one drop of water in an ocean that's that's doing the right thing, you know, and and it takes a collection of individual actions to ha- have a positive collective action, um, so that you know maybe ordering chicken instead of beef or maybe walking instead of driving, um, may, that's like voting. Think about it as you can vote every day. You can do this one little thing. And if everybody collectively did these one little things, then we'd, we'd get closer. I'm totally with that. I, that's something I've been talking with friends uh, often about is, is that sort of the balance and the, and, uh, the yes and of both of, of policy and behavior mm-hmm. change, dri- like driving us where we need to be. Um, when I hear politicians, candidates, or, or like companies um, say, well, if you just turn off the, you know, shower uh, for half the time, or if you, you know, turn off your fan or whatever, um, or if you just, you know, um, don't use plastic bags, then everything will be okay. Uh, to me, that that's like a really... Um, irresponsible thing. Irresponsible, yeah. like kind of like gaslighting the, the yeah. people. Um, totally. To, to, to put the burden on consumers... Uh, and, and folks yeah. who are like, just, you know, it's, it's taking, it's not taking any responsibility, mm-hmm. um, for it. And so when, when that happens, it's hard to be like, well, you know, it's yeah. not really about that behavior. Like you said, um, proportionally it's, it's the powers that are, um, creating all the fossil fuel, uh, use mm-hmm. and carbon yeah. output that need to change, but you're right inevitably we are going to have to change some behaviors mm-hmm. and we're going to have to change some policies so, so that the yeah. people making the, the big output are going to have to change. Yeah. And another analogy could be that, you know, you and I are small towns and we have plans in place. Like maybe, you know, we're a small town, but a town, but we can say like, you know what, let's not uh, build a shopping mall on, you know, tear down this forest and build a shopping mall. You know, because put up a parking lot, put Joni. You, you know, like, is it going to change like things? Just you know, just our action is that going to change the whole world? No, but it's like a it's a drop drop in the bucket, and you need policies at the federal level. Like they have to do that. Politicians have to do their job, and they have to they have to do what's right. They have to do um, what what we what we vote them in to do, um, and and lead. Um, but at the same time, like small towns can't wait for the federal government to get on board. Small towns also like sort of lead the, the effort. Um, politicians listen to their constituents. They often follow, they don't lead. They kind of serve as a kind of litmus to what people are doing. So if people's individual behaviors, they lead by the, the, the example that they set is the example that the politicians follow. Yeah. So that reminded me of um, when I heard recently that, um, you know, 
the U.S. exports so much, so much recycled material and mm-hmm. most of it to China. And recently, China stopped accepting that, and it was even it was even yeah. like explained that China was kind of just burning it or th- tossing it away and not really yeah. doing anything. And so that can uh, lead to like understandably could be like well why are why do we even bother recycling if it's not actually doing anything i've been guilty of that i mean i yeah. I, I read that philadelphia we since we because of the trade war or whatever whatever the reasons we're not giving our recycling to china we're just incinerating it out in, in chester um if i have a little hummus left in a plastic container and i could either throw it in the trash or i could waste water to clean it out to make it pristine and put in the recycling and it still might get burned I might like choose to save the water and just toss that small plastic container. Mm, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard uh, it framed in that type of instance. It's really interesting about the water. Yeah. Like those peanut yeah. butter, those plastic peanut butter things. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes a lot of hot water. Also, it's heating. So much. It's, it's got to soak. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you got you like it takes it takes carbon emissions. Maybe you use some soap that's in a single plastic uh, container. Yeah, but and then but have going to back clean to out the soap, you have to clean out the soap. Right. Like these things to be recycled, they they're only accepted if they're pristine by certain certain right. places. So it's just not worth the the water. And then going back to your first point, at what point if we all decide to toss out those hummus containers? and not put them in a recycling bin, and suddenly there's no recycling showing up for the town, do they stop offering that service? And then then, we're, then we've basically, we've um, perpetuated a habit that's going to be hard to undo. Right. Yeah, they're saying, yeah. So it, it's it's tough. Opens but tough it, if that little bit of water uh, is, is worth using to keep habits going and to then simultaneously... Uh, enforce policy that's needed mm-hmm. to make the behaviors worthwhile. Yeah, water's a a tricky one. I mean, th- th- so this is this is an incorrect thing, but this is an intuition that I had recently. So when you let's say you leave the sink running, right? Um, that water, are you wasting the water, or is that water just going back into the sewage system? That's kind of um, but it's clean water that's going into the sewage system. So once that water gets treated, it's still going to be clean water that's still cycled back through the water system. Are you really, you know what I mean? Are you really wasting water or are you just letting it pass through? <laughs> it's a terrible, like it's a terrible thought, but I had it. I had the thought. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I I wouldn't have thought about that. I would have just assumed that it would require some amount of energy, some amount of time and resources to re-cleanse and re, uh, you know, bring that water back around. Yeah, I think um, th- I think and, that's right. And especially if it's heated water that's coming out of your tap or your shower head, that required right. energy to heat. Yeah, that's that's the worst, the heating. Um, so, oh, sp- speaking of the heating and the home efficiency, nice um, yes, we. Uh, before you, you came on this podcast, um, we uh, we exchanged a, f- a few articles. Um, actually, I, I, I had you do the homework, and I said, look up a few articles you want to talk about and send them to me, and I'll read them, and I did. Um, so there's two articles. One is a review of Naomi Klein's um, most recent book of uh, essays um, 
on fire, the burning case for a Green New Deal. Um, and it's, uh, so she's a, we can talk about this. And then another one is, is more policy, more specific. And it's about um, a bill put forward by Bernie Sanders and Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, the Green New Deal for Public Housing. Um, so first, why don't we start with the first article, which is a, a review of the book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal by Naomi Klein. And let's start by summarizing this article, which is a review of a book for our listeners. We're getting pretty meta pretty fast. <laughs> but we're going to first provide a summary of a review of a book of essays. Um, Gabe, do you want to just uh, take a stab at summarizing this more or less a few sentences? You don't, you know, this isn't a quiz. It's not the... Sure. (laughs) This is an overview of what it's about. This is an article uh, that was published online in Jacobin about a month ago. And uh, it's it's reflecting on a book that Naomi Klein just put out uh, that I haven't read yet, but I've been reading a a different book of hers about... uh, climate change and capitalism. Um, but I was interested in this article because it was, um, it was putting words to uh, some sort of like context that I feel like has been coming up in political discussions and, and much needed, which is the f- um, sort of contextualizing of the climate change uh, work that's necessary within uh, class and economic uh, justice. And so the article is um, sort of reviewing Naomi's book, and also just sort of speaking about that intersectional understanding of the issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really appreciate it because uh, I think often there's a mainstream narrative that environmental environmental concerns live in its own bubble, mm-hmm. and that economic concerns live in a different bubble. Mm-hmm. And um, it's becoming more and more clear uh, that they're largely related that climate change is disproportionately affecting um, marginalized communities, mm-hmm. low-income communities, communities of color, communities that um, live in um, at-risk areas that don't have as much uh, mobility to mm-hmm. to find um, safer or like more stable areas to live in. So, um, and then on top of that, the 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 sort of um, the work that's needed to address climate change. Uh, from an, um, a business standpoint, the argument that um, the the article is sort of drawing from Naomi's book and reflecting on is that um, that it, to do the work for climate justice, we actually have the best chance and the best opportunity to simultaneously address uh, the the disparity and the injustice against working people, mm-hmm. working class people around the world. Uh, so. It's a really, really fantastic article. Yeah, and I, I thought when when I read it, um, I thought that one of the more powerful ideas behind it was the the political case for uh, building coalitions around around climate change. Um, the reason often given for why climate change is not um, spoken of as more of a priority by politicians is it doesn't affect everyday people and working class people, and and people care about quote-unquote pocketbook issues and their health care and they care about their rent they care about their wage and putting food on the table but by kind of tearing down those silos and joining um i'm going to quote the the title of this article for a sec uh calling climate change a class struggle 
um, the article is called Climate Change is a Class Struggle. By doing that, you pull in these people who might be more concerned about pocketbook issues and they, they get on board uh, by association with um, climate change policies. And you make um, the fight for climate change, you, you make it a, a working class fight. And, and politically, that's, that's how, that, how climate change becomes viable, essentially. Um, you know, the, the concern would be it's a, it's a big, it's a big talk and it's like, it's noble, but how do you write policy that actually can, um, can, can, uh, can walk the talk, can incorporate that, can do things for people's rents and their wages, um, and, uh, their food security, um, and their health, uh, un- under the, the umbrella of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why when you uh, assigned me the homework <laughs> of, uh-huh. uh, of sort of thinking about some articles to, to talk about with you, the second article that I chose um, was kind of in response to that question you're raising, which is mm-hmm. how do we actually put that into, into political action? And I think that the Green New Deal is a relatively new mainstream discussion, mm-hmm. uh, but it's been in the works for years thanks to um, climate justice activists and, and thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the Green New Deal came on the scene, uh, it it was sort of um, a, a common sort of um, rebuttal to it. It's like, this is this is like pie in the sky. This is like, it doesn't, what do you even, what, what would this even look like? Right? Right. right. And um, so recently when uh, Bernie Sanders and AOC released this uh, act um, proposal, Green New Deal for public housing. Mm-hmm. That to me was uh, a really beautiful example of just one way to um, address climate justice and economic justice at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was an article uh, published in The Nation online uh, a couple months ago mm-hmm. um, called Bernie and AOC's Green New Deal for Public Housing Act Would Transform America. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Can I uh, just quickly to jump in? So it was written by Daniel Cohen of uh, Data for Progress, which is uh, which is a pen think tank. Um, I've met him. I've oh, met the writer. Awesome. He came and spoke at a class that I I had on sea level rise, and I uh, met his his colleague at the institute to to learn more. I, I, there was also a City Lab um, article um, to tie it into urban planning a little bit about this issue. They where they quote Daniel Cohen and as well as a. Uh, uh, Billy Fleming, who does a lot of work um, with all of this too, uh, but Data Data for Progress is a pro- it's a progressive uh, think tank that tries to kind of quantify the impact of different progressive policies. So um, the way I understood it is uh, is AOC kind of contacted uh, Penn to kind of to study this and and give some information in terms of how many jobs would this bill create, um, where would those jobs be be located. Um, an emphasis of this article that, that we read was that um, actually more construction jobs would be um, located in, uh, um, in, tr- in red states than blue states, states that went Trump. But I think first we should take a step back and summarize what this bill is. Sure, yeah. I was also just doing a little bit of reading about the co-author, Julian Brave Noisecat, who also is affiliated with Data for Progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen Julian uh, speak in some video interviews like with Democracy Now! and some other um, publications, and I've really enjoyed hearing from them. Um, but cool. the, so the article is sort of uh, summing up what 
um, what the act, the proposal, is all about. Mm-hmm. And really, at the the crux of it, it's it's about public housing uh, and um, upgrading and decarbonizing units in um, cities around the country, mm-hmm. primarily in New York City because that's the largest. Um, public housing system in the country to my understanding but Mm -hmm. would also be um happening in uh like politically red states as well Mm -hmm. and states where um donald trump won in Mm -hmm. 2016 so that was that was something that the article noted Mm -hmm. but um the idea is that this would be um a huge uh a huge effort to provide unionized jobs to upgrade and raise the quality and and value of housing for low-income and working-income families Mm -hmm. uh, while also um, putting a taking a huge uh, dent out of the carbon output uh, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, It was uh, the article mentioned that this initiative would create up to 240,000 jobs per year Mm -hmm. while um, essentially taking the equivalent of 1.2 million cars off the road. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So I. I uh, so j- to to clarify, a lot of it was they wanted to um, decarbonize uh, one million public housing units all over the country. You mentioned the majority in in uh, around New York City and state, but also um, more than half are in are in Trump districts. Um, it would cost one hundred eighty billion dollars over ten years. Um, it would create, uh, you, as you mentioned, union construction jobs. So I think this is it's important to to note that when we say spend 180 billion dollars, we're not building rebuilding these buildings out of dollar bills. The 100 billion dollars <laughs> is is money that's going back into the economy. It's going into that's wages. Those are that's mostly labor costs. You know, um, it's it, it's 100 billion dollars that are going to go to um, you know working people to uh, design and create professional services, jobs, construction jobs, the works. Um, So we can talk about the price tag in a minute, because I also sent you something on the budget to put that to put that. I want to hear more about it. But I I wanted I wanted to address what what was mentioned before, because whenever I see numbers and I see data, I I know how these kind of think tank works. It's that they have a you have a client. And you try to frame an issue using data in a way that um, promotes that endeavor, um, and that you know conservative think tanks do this all the time, liberal think tanks do this all the time. You have clients, and you make an economic case for something or against something. So using data, it's almost like using legalese. It's like lawyers; you can kind of create any story you want. So I just want to put put this into context financially, and um, and and numerically. Um, $180 billion, first of all, over 10 years is $18 billion per year. Um, the question is, is that a lot? What does that mean? Um, so, for example, Medicare for all is, has been costed at $20 trillion over 10 years. That's the Elizabeth Warren plan. Um, so that's uh, over 100 times as expensive as this bill. Um the federal uh, the spending in the budget um, is four trillion dollars. So so really eighteen billion dollars per year. It's really it's not a lot of money. And uh, in fact, the, the the City Lab article I read was was saying how they were surprised when they ran the numbers 
um, how, how cheap it really would be. So I think that's the first kind of thing that has to be addressed. It's not, it's, it's actually not like a big kind of spending financial thing um, in the grand scheme of things. Um, Thanks for sharing that. So I wanted to mention that. Yeah. Uh, the sec- on the second point, though, it also, it doesn't make a, I would say it doesn't make a giant difference in terms of curbing emissions. So, for example, I mean, it's, it's important. It's important. But it says it would decrease emissions from 5.6 million tons to zero, right? It would decarbonize 1 million public housing units. Um, there are 138 million housing units in the country. So it's only decarbonizing a very small percentage, less than 0.1%. Um, and the U.S. annual carbon emissions is, is 5.3 billion uh, metric tons. So, so it's 0.001% of, of emissions um, from, uh, that, that it, would, it would cut. So yeah. it, so so it it helps, and it, it's like it's a low cost, but it's also it's the the impact. Can, it shouldn't it shouldn't be we shouldn't mislead about like it's not the bill. This is not the Green New Deal bill that is going to change everything. It's a small part of the solution. Thank you. And yeah, it's, it's a low absolutely. cost, small part of the solution. It's not saying that it's not a bill that's saying we're going to address climate change and public housing with one bill. No, this is just. Here's a little bit of money, and we're going to address this part of public housing. I think it was really important. Thanks. That's really, really important context. And, and it's. Um, I hope that the narrative continues to be that this is, this is part of a large umbrella of efforts under the yes. Green New Deal. Just like the New Deal had lots of different agencies and different sort of wings mm-hmm. of providing labor opportunities uh, to jumpstart the economy. Um and to provide services, the, the Green New Deal is going to have to take many different paths and different forms. Yes. Um, but I think this is this was really important because, to, to my understanding, this was the first time that under the name Green New Deal, a tangible plan was put forward yeah. to sort of demonstrate how climate and economic justice work could, be, could be put into policy. Absolutely. And I, th- I think I think it's a great it's a great idea. I would I would based on what I've read today. Um, I read about uh, after the article you sent, I think I read about four or five just to kind of figure things out. I would vote for it tomorrow, but it has to be clear, clear, like this is just one of a hundred solutions that you need. Like this, this only addresses decarbonization of public housing units, a million public housing units, which is, it's important because that is, um, because the the federal government has to spend money to decarbonize those for private housing units, those can be decarbonized with with local laws that say when you redevelop, you have to meet these standards. But the federal government they control public housing, so they can decarbonize those units. Yeah, um, and and you were saying uh, just a minute ago how um, to to be clear that this is um, it's a it's a small percentage of carbon footprint and it's relatively a small amount of money um to the sort of the greater cause um what i think is is important is about the sort of proportion and the uh of of um fiscal effort to um helping proportionally uh citizens who are low income 
and those mm-hmm. and more affected and and susceptible to climate change. So um, I think that's an important step in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, even with you know just to add more context to the numbers. Yeah. No. That that's a really good point because a lot of the discussion can be about well if you're going to spend eighteen billion dollars a year, is it better used to decarbonize public um, public buildings? Or is it better used to subsidize research into solar wind energy? Or is it better used to, you know, build a more efficient transmission lines or any number of activities? So it's all about, you know, the questions are how do you spend the money? Yeah. Um, and it, uh, it's not going to happen this year, but maybe 2020, who knows? Yeah. Um, but I think for a first bill, because this one clearly illustrates how uh, lower income people are going to be more benefited more and it's not just about decarbonizing the building so i wanted to to understand um this a little bit more but the the city lab article says that because this is the question what is decarbonization what does it mean if you demolish a building is that decarbonization (laughs) i don't know if that would be the first definition (laughs) but this says quote the energy retrofits imagined by the bill run the gamut including new cladding efficient window glazing electrical appliances so it's it's yeah. a little it's a little bit of everything, and you would think that in in some of the older buildings um, where there's lead paint, there's other health benefits right. that you would have for the people health, living there. Health and and wellness and just like you know quality of life. Yeah, and value to the to the property. Mm-hmm. It and also says it'll lower the water bills, it'll lower the heating bills because you'll have more insulation. So it's not just that the benefit is to it's decreasing carbon emissions globally. The benefit is very specific to the, the the people living in those units. Yeah. So I think that this bill, it does clearly illustrate that. And as as a first one, I think it's good. But the message has to be, it has to be honest because I think what what this data, the data for progress report, what I kind of didn't like about it, is, first of all, it didn't say what it meant to decarbonize the buildings. It didn't say where the residents would go while their units are being retrofitted. So that's that's still up in the air. But it do also they, do they have to go? Do they have to temporarily be I'm not sure. Relocated? Okay. Probably in that's some cases, yeah. Um but um it it mentioned how it, the the importance of tying housing to climate change and with the rents and all this stuff. This does this won't affect the rents. Like another policy has to change the rents so this can't it can't pretend to be a bill that solves housing that's kind of what my my point is this is this can't be um branded as a say that's saying like we're gonna solve housing because you can't create these unreasonable expectations it should be branded as a just a a low-cost good thing to do yeah absolutely in terms (laughs) of in terms of uh, paying for it yeah um We were just talking a little bit before uh, the episode about how um, I've been I've been like highly uh, almost obsessively engaged in following um, this political season and um, and the Democratic primaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been aware of how the mainstream narrative, especially in the debates and and considering, um, you know, the different candidates stances the the narrative has been um, for things like healthcare 
and climate change, the question of how are we going to pay for it is comes up first, first and foremost. When when the debates have been getting more into foreign policy and, and war questions, uh, there is rarely, if any, ever the question of how are we going to pay for it. I think that this, I, I see where you're going with this, and we're, we want to talk about the, the candidates in a second, the Democratic field, because I've also been watching the debates. But just while we're on the subject of uh, how we're going to pay for something, and we're in this kind of wonky policy discussion, I want to I want to talk about the federal federal budget. Great, please, because I, I feel I, like, yes, I did want to hear more about that. Thank I feel you. like I feel like we're all you know citizens of of the country, and we don't know jack about federal budget and um, you know what any of these numbers mean. What the hell does eighteen billion dollars a year mean? Um, I sure as hell didn't know, even until this morning um, when I. I, I read about the budget. Um, so I, I sent you the link on, on your phone. But I, I'll tell you, like, you know, re- Republicans aren't, they, they like to say that the deficit's important and you got to be careful with your money. Um, Trump's budget is, is, is the record. This is the most expensive um, budget in history. The deficit is, is increasing. Wow. Um, $4.7 trillion dollars is uh is what's being uh spent spent this year um for context um let's see uh so how about how about obama in 2000 and before he got reelected so that's 2011 right so this is before he was up for election just to compare okay um let's see Four point seven five trillion dollars is just really, really hard to wrap my head around. <laughs> so Obama in in um, two thousand eleven, it was uh, it was three point six trillion. Wow, expen- expenditures. So it went up from three point six to now you have um, four point uh, four point seven trillion, right? So th- this kind of this kind of talking point about the deficit doesn't really uh, stand true. But now, so this is very interesting. Where does that four point seven mm-hmm. trillion go? Um, we're getting three point six trillion in revenue, first of all. So that's almost a one trillion dollar deficit, deficit yeah. that's wow. that's being created. But but just just really quick. So of that three point six trillion dollars, half comes from income taxes, um, and then about thirty five percent comes from Social Security. Uh, Medicare and other like taxes non related to income and corporate taxes are are seven percent tariffs are are four percent this is for this year um, so those are the top source of revenue it's 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 taxes now where does this money get spent sixty percent Gabe what do you think sixty percent goes towards <laughs> the military. No, sixty oh. percent um, social services, social service, social yeah. security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So part of the reason that the deficit or that we're, the spending is is up so high is the baby boomers who retire. This huge cohort, right. huge population, they're getting pensions. They mm-hmm. need social security. They need Medicare. And that's I mean that's a part of it, but yeah, sixty percent goes goes there. And um, yeah, we have elderly people that uh, take you know. 
They, I mean, they deserve it. They're hard, hard working all their lives. They're paying for Social Security. So anyway, so right there, 60% of the $4.7 trillion goes to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. It's <laughs> a lot. So, um, okay. So that, that, that's that. Um, then what you have left is called the discretionary budget. Um, discretionary spending, we have $1.4 trillion for discretionary spending. Um, half of that goes to the military. So the military, it's, it's not mandatory. It's, it's discretionary. There's not a law that says you have to pay the military this amount. There are laws that say you have to pay Social Security this, and you have to pay mm-hmm, Medicare, and mm-hmm. you have to pay Medicaid. So of $1.4 trillion, let's say $700 billion around goes to uh goes to the military there's also an emergency fund of 200 billion yeah i saw that it's sneaky <laughs> <laughs> for, for wars as well or disaster i guess we're gonna need a little more of that like, so that yeah. kind of leaves 500 billion dollars roughly for everything else discretionary uh, spending and of so of that 500 billion dollars that's where you would get the 18 billion would go into that public housing so it's not insignificant but you know it's 18 of 500 billion dollars it's like manageable especially considering that the government doesn't build public housing anymore a lot of the affordable housing in america is built through the low-income housing tax credit and Mm -hmm. and the private sector which has has helped that um but i just thought that let's i wanted to put that in perspective about yeah yeah. of of the federal spending first of all it's at an all-time high now under trump um and, uh, you know, because of the baby boom generation, like we said, because of the the U.S., the military. Um, but uh, <laughs> I would be curious to know, to see, you know, over the last couple decades, how um, how corporate tax cuts and wealthy tax cuts have affected our revenue. That's a, that's a great uh, question. So I mentioned we get revenue. It's 7% is going to be from corporate taxes this year. Let's go from 2006. That's as far back as this data goes. So this is this is the Bush era. Um, the revenue was given 12% from corporate taxes. So the corporate tax cut has clearly uh, had an effect on revenue. And, you know, $1 trillion as, as deficits, pretty substantial. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, Thank That was really, really helpful. <laughs> I mean, just I like, appreciate you breaking it down. As a voting citizen of this country, like it's, I think it's important to know where our tax paying money goes to. Absolutely. Um, it goes to Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. Um, you know, especially as like Medicare for all is a huge, huge debate um, that would, by, by Warren's plan, it would cost what i read it said 20 20 trillion dollars over 10 years so two trillion dollars a year the 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 budget is 4.7 trillion dollars so it's that's expensive and she said that a lot of that would come from corporate taxes wealth tax wealth taxes so it's in it, it it that is structural change um i i don't want to get too much into the weeds in it sure. um, yeah. but Good. i do want to also do also also want to acknowledge that um, her, Warren's uh, plans and talk about Medicare for all has changed 
back and forth a little bit over the last few months. Yeah. And that um, she sort of, my understanding is that she sort of rolled back her, her plan um, and sort of projected out that she would, she would put it off a little bit to actually do put in place or, or push for Medicare for all as sort of as Bernie closer to Bernie has outlined it. Um, So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Okay, great. Uh, Let's take just a short, quick break and then come back and we'll talk about the, um, the debates, this, the one that was this week and, and some of the the candidates and and where we're at. See you there. back on climate change therapy with Gabe Gordon. Um, Gabe, I understand that as, as we want to start with a story to preface a discussion that we were about to have on the, the democratic field um, as it relates or doesn't relate to climate change. So uh, I give you the floor. Thanks, Hank. Uh, we were just starting to get into um, talking about climate change within the realm of of national politics, and I just asked you off air, um, you know, is it okay to go there on your show to, to talk about politics? And um, I asked that because I feel aware of how um, polarizing talking about specific candidates, specific policies can be. And um, the story I wanted to share is that uh, my friend and I, uh, my friend who um, had been part of those Extinction Rebellion actions with me, um, we were reflecting on how in 2016, um, though we didn't know it at the time, we were both experiencing very, we were holding similar political views in the Democratic primary, and we were also experiencing similar um, polarizations and like kind of toxic silence and tiptoeing around talking about it with our friends and within our community. Hmm. Um, there were a lot of strong opinions in 2016 that I remember. Uh, folks who were strongly in favor of the Clinton campaign, strongly in favor of the Sanders campaign. And I remember feeling like there wasn't safe space to, to talk about it and, and ag- agree to disagree or just like hear each other out. To talk about, you mean Sanders versus Clinton or particular issues among them? Uh, I think I think one and the same. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my friend and I were reflecting on this and... Um, uh, full disclosure: We're we're both uh, very passionate about the Sanders campaign, mm-hmm. uh, our revolution, as it's sort of branded. Um, and so we were th- we were thinking about: is, Was there a way to um, sort of uh, hold space for conversation and dialogue with friends, where we could express where we're at mm-hmm. in in supporting the cam- campaign, and also invite everyone else to share, like. How are you feeling about this election? Where, um, what does it feel like to follow it? Do you have views? Do you have opinions? Do you have questions? And mm-hmm. so we've started holding little, you know, hangouts um, with you know six, seven friends to just share out, hear each other out, um, and that's been really energy giving for me mm-hmm. as as someone who's been following the primary probably obsessively and unhealthily, but just mm-hmm. just consuming a lot of news and commentary on it um, and and wanting space to share out and also just like hear, are hear these friends. Are these hangouts at your Brooklyn walk up or at a cafe? <laughs> they're they're in my apartment. Okay. Uh, you know, with like cheese and crackers and uh, <laughs> sure. all that good stuff. And they, they happen to have been held uh over on the same nights as the last few democratic primaries. Yeah. So we've also like tuned in and watched those as well. 
Was there, just to get back to my last question, was there a particular difference between Bernie and Hillary that was kind of the the, the inspiration for having these talks that, that you had to s- skate around? Like what, when you talk about the differences between Bernie and Hillary, what comes to mind? Sure. I, I think that, um, I think that the way I've been thinking about the um, election of Trump has been as a reaction to a number of decades of status quo uh, neoliberal um, uh, politics and political state that mm-hmm. has really um, that has benefited an elite class and has really been at the expense of working people. And I think that uh, his election was a reaction to that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I personally, my understanding of it is that uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, came from that same establishment state and mm-hmm. and represented some of that in her campaign, and that um, Bernie Sanders was uh, in opposition of that and was outside of it. Mm-hmm. And um, so, even though it was within the Democratic Party, to me, it represented more of of a divide. And we're really seeing that play out in this uh, in the twenty twenty primary. But this um, this conflict between s- sort of establishment status quo. Democratic mm-hmm. uh, policies and uh, more progressive, uh, you know, critique of that. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's get into to the twenty twenty race now. Um, Bernie Sanders is is running again, um, and it seems like he's as much of a front runner as any, or he's kind of caught up. He was sort of. It seems like he's he was that it was almost universally Joe Biden's race to lose in a way, but now it almost seems like a three-horse race at the top with uh, with Sanders, Warren, and and Biden. Um, and you can make the case that going into it, Warren and Sanders seem to be very much aligned on policies. And maybe maybe it's that their votes were kind of getting divided um, down the middle, kind of. They were splitting the uh, support of, of the more progressive left, and then Biden was kind of anchoring that that moderate field so anyway that's my analysis of what's what's happening um what about the 2020 race has kind of uh has caught your eye where do you think who has the best chance to win um uh you know give me your or give me your rankings one through six i don't know sure yeah absolutely make up a question to answer regarding this race (laughs) should i say that's a great question (laughs) i just did thank you uh yeah absolutely i I was sharing in my most recent hangout with friends that it is really so exciting to see in a mainstream democratic uh, stage two progressive voices and and several other voices within the primary who are, you know, not really high in the ranks. But in general, there's a progressive voice that's being heard and that's that's actually like changing the discourse and the discussion. Like years ago, we were not talking about Medicare for all. We were not talking about climate change at every uh, debate. We were not, you know, questioning certain war decisions. Like these are some mm-hmm. major, major changes in discourse mm-hmm. and in just sort of like the parameter, the paradigm. We have been talking Medicare for all. We have been talking about for fifty years at least. But but I I, I, I would I, see your I point. would argue that it hasn't been 
on on the front and center. I mean, it it is ranking as the number one issue for Democratic voters. Mm-hmm. I yeah. and I, I think that um, so so I was just expressing gratitude for yeah. the progressive voices in the campaign in the in the race that I would consider primarily Bernie and Warren as contributing to that. And so that mm-hmm. I felt like that was amazing. Um, just as I was saying that the the election of Trump was a reaction to status quo that was hurting people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that his, his uh, being the president is a catastrophe, right? It's a horrible, horrible situation. Right. And um, in, in the midst or in the wake of a catastrophe or disaster, there's a moment to seize opportunity and actually grow from mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's exciting to see as a strong possibility um, the Democratic Party actually jump and grow out of this opportunity rather than try to go back to the, the thing, the, the state of affairs that led us to this catastrophe. Right. Uh, so that's why I'm really excited that 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 both Bernie and Warren are front, are contenders. Mm hmm. Um, and in, you asked me sort of about, um, rankings, right? Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned that I support, uh, the Sanders campaign and I, I've been wary of the mainstream narrative around electability, um, because I think that's been sort of couched in an, in, a um, an, maybe an unfair rule or principle that, um, ambitious or progressive, uh, plans aren't, aren't possible. And that moderation is the way to win, and I, I think mm. that's maybe a false narrative. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say I'm kind of the opposite because I think there seemed to be a consensus after 2016, in a way, among Democrats that if Bernie had run instead of Hillary, he would have won in a way, because um, Trump carried a lot of Michigan and uh, Pennsylvania and certain states that flipped from blue to red that Bernie had a lot of support in. Um, so I'm going to also say like Bernie is my also preferred candidate now. And I, I thought about this quite a bit. Um, but the reason is I think he's the most electable. I agree. I agree. I think we're saying the same thing. Um, I'm curious to hear why it's less his policies and more his electability. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, something that I've been really tuning into is the, the strategy of his campaign and just the sheer force and um, skill being deployed in his ground game. He has an immense, immense coalition of, of volunteers and uh, organizers on the ground. And the, the primary strategy of the Sanders campaign that I understand is to um, convince people who are, who are disillusioned to um, national politics and who have not often voted to get out and vote. It's not about necessarily finding like, people who, who jump back and forth between quote-unquote blue and red. Mm-hmm. It's about the people who haven't been voting and the people who haven't been engaged and reaching them with, with clear messages about things that matter to them. Mm-hmm. And um, we have seen that this strategy was a huge part of the, the quote-unquote blue wave and especially of um, helping to get really progressive national politicians elected in 2018. Like yeah. AOC had a huge turnout of people who had not been voting. Mm-hmm. And that same strategy is, is being sort of bet on by the Sanders campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, it has been a strategy that often has been under 
estimated in in polls mm-hmm. because the polling uh often is going to people who are already like tuned in and are already like you know like a part of the the yeah the process yeah there there's i think that generally um candidates that are nominated for democratic part uh nomination republican nomination tend to be more more central um for for the reason uh and that is because um uh for the congressional uh districts like where uh, where AOC won you win by unseating someone in your own party like so she won when she got the nomination over the, her fellow democrat right. that's a very democratic district so you win by getting those left of left by by reaching out and getting those those the, the far left and bringing bring those to the table that's how you win a district that gets predominantly left um, for a national election, there are the swing voters uh, in the mi- in the middle, um, like similar to a, a a congressional seat that can go either or in Missouri or something. You the strategy is to to kind of reach across the aisle. So the strategies for for AOC and for like Missouri are different. And now for president, you kind of have to balance that and gauge if you can go middle of the aisle and go left of the aisle. I think. For the Bernie Sanders case, it's a somewhat unusual case and almost a mischaracterization to say you have the right and you have the left because Bernie, obviously, he appeals to the far left. But I think he also can appeal to these people who voted for Trump this past election because they like someone who speaks, who sounds authentic. Like, that's kind of what it comes down to beyond policies. Yeah. Like, you want someone that seems like they're telling the truth and that's what that's why a lot of like Bernie had a lot more support than Hillary, I think. Right. I think there's a he's Bernie is the uh, candidate that voters trust the most. He's like the most trustworthy or um, reliable in trust. Um, and I also yeah. think like knowing that just in terms of his policies, Medicare for all, when it's explained properly and not mischaracterized is an is a overwhelmingly bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're totally right about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I also, I, I don't have to be, I, I don't think Medicare for all will pass, but I don't think that affects the way that I support Bernie Sanders. I think that as a, as a leader, you kind of have to say what you believe and not necessarily what you think is feasible. Um, and you have to kind of, you have to anchor that. I mean, other plenty of other countries. So Medicare for all is it, it's an old story. It's an old idea that was big in the Jimmy Carter days and and before. Um, but since that, and it almost passed back then. But since that, um, so many other countries have kind of adopted universal healthcare systems. And now uh, because of globalism, because of uh, you know we see travel, immigration, people here have experienced universal healthcare in other countries, and they say like. How do you not have it now uh, in America? Um, so it makes sense as an idea. Um, and I, th- I don't see how it would almost be dishonest in a way for him to say anything else. Like he's a guy who, um, you know, he, he says what's on his mind. He's almost 80 years old. Like he doesn't have a lot of time left. Like he's going to say what he believes and you take it, take it or leave it. If he's not going to be president, he'll go on being a, a, a senator. Absolutely. Yeah. And right before the break, we were just starting to talk about uh, Elizabeth Warren's health care plan. Um, and is it OK if we go back to that? 
and sort of yeah flesh it out a little bit yeah 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 um so early on in the primaries um warren basically said i'm with i'm with bernie Mm -hmm. i'm with bernie's medicare for all plan and then there she she was rising in the polls and she was kind of put on the defense in some in some primaries and conversations and the um the attack was how are you going to pay for it it's going to cost people money and bernie's response to that has always been well we're gonna there is a tax but ultimately costs will go down with Mm -hmm. the medicare for all system um, because premiums and drug costs and all that stuff will go down um warren warren's campaign made a decision to not uh reframe the question but rather to try to come up with a, a, a really complex plan to explain how there wouldn't be any taxes on middle-income uh, Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and she released this plan that is called Medicare for All, um, but really the way that I've like sort of read about it is that um, it's essentially a two-phase uh, plan that starts with a public option, which is very much not Medicare for All. Um, it's kind of like uh, Obamacare, Obamacare. Um, where there is a public option, but it's not really getting in the way of private companies mm-hmm. having a, their way. A public subsidy. I, yeah. I use Obamacare. It's a pu- right. it's, there's you. not a, a public option, really, at least I, not that I qualify for, but it's a public subsidy. You can if state if your income's a certain amount, the government subsidizes private health insurance for you. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it also makes buying health insurance easy because it's like an easy way to compare plans. It kind of uh, it aggregates mm-hmm. um, all the different insurance companies. Right. Uh, thank you. And so that's phase one of Warren's plan. And so mm-hmm. then uh, her plan says, well, after a few years um, have passed in her, um, her presidency, she would then enact phase two. Um, and so phase two, I think, would get closer to Medicare for all, but wouldn't even guarantee the elimination of private companies, to my understanding. So it, it's sort of like she 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 did kind of backpedal from the right. Medicare for all that um, is extremely popular as Bernie has laid out. So I just wanted to offer that distinction. Um, and mm. and I think, you know, you were you were mentioning earlier that um, Bernie and Warren sort of share um, a lot of similar like progressive uh, mm-hmm. support, and I think it's I think it's true that they're the most progressive voices in the race, and I also think that um, it's it there should be more nuance to the discussion around their differences, yeah, and and their similarities and also their bases. I think that uh, what I've been reading and and hearing is that. Um, Bernie's got this diverse coalition of largely working class Americans Mm -hmm. um, and that Warren has actually like the core of her base are kind of like um, well-educated middle to upper middle class Americans. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's a different it's a different uh, group that is sort of occupying the core of of their bases. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I just think that's it's it's worth being aware of. Hmm. Yeah, I also, I read somewhere, I, th- I think it was someone's tweet, it might have been the, the, the uh, Sean King, he's kind of like a, yeah. a big, big uh, a writer thinker, but he was saying how 
Warren was a Republican event, like originally. Yeah. Because it came up because in the last debate, um, the question, Warren said she was the only um, person on the stage to unseat a Republican candidate in the last 30 years. Or, or maybe, or she was saying that she did that or saying maybe like, I, I don't know. But I think she it was unseated, to win every. She was saying yeah. how she unseated okay. a Republican candidate okay. to win her position. But he, Sean King's response was that she used to be a Republican candidate. That's true. I, I, I really don't hold that against Warren. I think it's, it's really great to see um, uh, politicians ch- like change their views yeah, and, and own sure. that. Um, and, you know, I think that she, her story is like really incredible. I mean, she, to, to grow up um, in a, a low-income rural American family to um, grind and, you know, achieve her career goals while, um, you know, having a child. Was it, I think, having multiple children on mm-hmm. her own? I mean, she's she uh, clearly has, like, done immense work and yeah. has, has just, like, gone on an incredible journey. I agree. I, I have a lot of respect for her, and I like, I like her when she talks, and she seems, she seems great, and I think she would make a, a really good president. I do. I th- but I do think Bernie, I'm more confident in Bernie um, as a candidate in just in terms of I feel like if he had nomination 2016, he would have won. And I feel like even though he's four years older now, so is Donald Trump. So that age shouldn't really yeah. be a huge difference. Yeah. The way that I've been understanding or like summarizing the differences between Bernie and Warren is that... Um, Warren is working within the system, current system, and her plan to create the change is to just like tamp down, like push, push, push down regulation, push down on the system. And Bernie wants to identify like the root mm-hmm. of the, the problem and change that. And um, I think that mm. for the, the issues that matter most to me that I feel are most urgent, especially around climate change and and all the intersections with uh, economic justice i th- i believe more in bernie's approach hmm. uh, it's a it's a good way to to kind of describe that difference what what would you say is is the root yeah i think it's um i think it's I, money in politics that mm-hmm. has agenda to to benefit the top percent hmm. Hmm. okay We'll leave that just lying there. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Can I give you my power rankings of Democratic candidates? Oh, great. Let's do it. Really quick. Um, so number six, just, this is just of the, the six Who's on the people. stage? You're not going to include Mike Bloomberg in this? I'm just going to name who's on the stage <laughs> okay. right now. Um, uh, Bloomberg, good for climate change, but un, uh, unclear. Bad for many uh, things. Bad for other things. Um, but uh, number six, I've got uh, Tom Steyer. I don't get how he was on the stage. It sounds like he just like bought his way up. The, yeah, he sure has. He seems like he seems like a nice enough fellow, but I feel like I just you got to put in the work. And I think after after the Trump years, I want someone in there with governing experience. That's all. I Nothing to, against Tom Steyer. I have to say he's had some really great answers on the debate stage. <laughs> he is. He says he's the only candidate that has made climate his number one priority. You mean he who's like that. currently in the race? Who's currently in the race? Yeah. 
He's trying to be Jay Inslee. He's trying. He's he, not Jay Inslee. I feel like he joined after Inslee dropped out. Saw mm. an opportunity there. Um, but okay, yeah, so he, like so nothing he, against I'm sorry, but I feel like you got to earn your stripes a little bit. Okay, so Styer's number six. <laughs> Styer six. Um, then I have a, a three way tie for third <laughs> between um, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Pete Buttigieg, and Joe Biden. Can you say? Uh, Wait, what are we ranking? <laughs> I'm ranking the six candidates. In terms of who you would prefer? Yes. Okay, got it. Who I would prefer to get the nomination. So can you say the three again? So tied for third is uh, Warren, Biden, and Buttigieg. Okay. So here's here's my issues with, with them and why I like them. Um, so like, I like Biden, but I do think that his age is more of a concern to me than Bernie because he actually sh- he seems like he shows his age more in the debate. Like he doesn't seem as spry as he did in 2008. That was 12 years ago, by the way, when he last ran for president. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's a great, great guy. I like Joe Biden as a person, but I just I don't feel like he's sharp enough. It just seems like at this point, I don't feel as confident in terms in an election i feel like he might he's a little risky because he could kind of go overboard and his age can kind of make him say something that um that ruins him i don't know can do you want me to wait to respond you can respond um i i see um i see biden as the most the most possible uh, um scenario for the democratic party trying to promote going back to the status quo that got us trump in the first place Mm -hmm. and so i actually see biden as a as a a threat to a seizing opportunity from a catastrophe Mm -hmm. um biden has pretty much been on the wrong side of history on pretty much every major legislative decision Mm -hmm. and i i think that's that's inexcusable given that he hasn't apologized or changed his mind all right, strong words from Gabe Gordon. At gunpoint, I'm putting you on a spot here. Joe Biden or Tom Steyer? Oh my God. That's a great question. Again, with the questions. All right, moving what are on. You, you host a podcast? You can think about this. You can think about this. It depends on who Tom Steyer chose as a running mate. Um, running mate is a different question. But uh, so then Buddha Judge. Buddha Judge. Um, I think he's a really smart guy. I like I like when he speaks. I think he's got a really promising future, but I just think he's young and inexperienced, and I wouldn't trust him staring down at Vladimir Putin. You know, and I I just think that he's got a future, but I would like to I'd like to see him be a governor or or a senator before. I, you know, I think this time around I really want someone with experience. Uh, the you know either being a governor or a, a senator. Just a little, just uh, he's a little green. That's all. It's kind of the opposite of Biden. Um, do you want to respond? Please, <laughs> I feel please like do. I'm really just derailing your power yeah. rankings. Please do. I feel I, I love this. I, I'm like being nice about. It. I feel like you're just bringing the the high heat. So go. I'll on. bring I'll bring all the heat. Um, but I I also just want to say that I appreciate you sharing your rankings, and I I don't don't want to like step on any. You know? no, no, please, please go on. Okay. I like this, this reaction. Yeah. Um, I remember when Buttigieg joined the race, he kind of received this huge surge in media attention. He was like a media darling. 
And he kind of came out with with echoing some progressive stances. Like he said he was for Medicare for all. He had a lot of great talking points. Um, and I've watched him over the course of the last few months change his tune. And I, I now feel pretty disillusioned by Pete Buttigieg. I've, I... I identify his behaviors as those of a politician and not of that of someone who genuinely wants to represent people's uh, needs. Yeah. And so I think he's playing the game and he's playing the game well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I don't have a lot of trust in him Mm -hmm. uh, to uphold the things that he was at first calling for. And now he's kind of occupying like a more moderate lane. And that just doesn't that doesn't appeal to me. And yeah, and I I think it's almost the opposite of what we're saying before with Bernie Sanders, how Bernie Sanders is you know, pushing on 80 and he's just going to say what he believes and it's going to sound pretty authentic. Whereas like Buttigieg, he's half Bernie's age and he's still, he's still saying things that he thinks voters want to hear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I still think he has a promising future. Um, and I would, you know, he, in eight years, <laughs> I think Bernie said this exact words on the debate stage <laughs> to him. Um, <laughs> Look, I'm putting I'm putting him up with uh, with Biden, who I who I thought was one of the best vice presidents like of my lifetime. Um, so anyway, nothing against Buttigieg. He's just I think he's a little young, and I think that's totally fair. He's not he's only a few years older than us. Um, <laughs> he's you know he's wild. Yeah, uh, I can't imagine running for president. He he could be like your brother, um, but and then and then Warren. I have I have Warren up there. Um, there. So why is Warren uh, number three and in a tie with those other two? Um, I think she's in a tie with with those other two because I I, uh, I don't you know, it's it's this is a, it's a good question but I I just like there's there's kind of something of about like her tactics that kind of feel like she's kind of trying to spin herself as kind of like like victimized in certain regards in a way that um that overall i i i haven't grown fond of in the past like five years essentially um the idea that you know she would constantly like check the box like to that she's like native american you know you know like that was a big miss yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, yeah. I mean, just put white. You're white. You know, you can check white when you take your SATs or whatever. Um, and then also like the the thing that came out with the Bernie Sanders about like the conversation that he said, um, you know, that a woman couldn't win president. I feel like I believe Bernie Sanders at this point. That Bernie Sanders probably just said, well, a lot of other people were thinking that you know that Trump's gonna use your gender against you and it's kind of what everyone thinks doesn't necessarily say aloud but is true and is just you know between you and me and they're you know that they're friends sanders and warren are aligned on so many issues and they go back way back like that doesn't have to come out it just doesn't that that and i don't think it was good for either of them no well in fact the the poll after um that debate Mm -hmm. and even after all of the media drumming up sort of like Bernie has a women problem and um, all this stuff. Bernie went up in the polls and Warren yeah. went down. And I think rightfully so. Like, like how could you actually think that Bernie Sanders would think that? Like Hillary, it's so true. Hillary Clinton won 
he she beat Bernie and then not for the nomination and then she won the popular vote like and of he course. and he uh, stumped for her he had also called for you know asked Warren to run there's videos of him online saying that a woman could and should be president so I think it was a it looked really desperate yeah from from a campaign and and was unfortunate to see like a friend kind of just like stab another friend in the the back mm-hmm. and 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 again it's just like playing that card so it's like the Native American card and the woman card like you know what? we're not gonna it doesn't matter that that you're a woman like it's like your it, your policies you're super smart and you have a lot to offer and you're a great speaker you're you're hope one of the most hopeful candidates you're inspirational it's like you don't have to try to pander by saying like you know vote for me because it's about time a woman got elected like just I don't yeah. I don't know I, but I, I look I said like I like Biden I like Pete I like Elizabeth Warren I like her me too but but I you know I don't like yeah. her as much as the final final two real quick can I just say something yeah <laughs> my friend uh, who I've been hosting these hangs with something that she's said that I it really has um, been helpful for me she said that um, you know for her while yes it's really important and and valuable to see uh, women hold positions of leadership and to see a woman become president there's value to that and also there is so much sort of there's a, a different scale and importance of value of the policies that affect women and she feels that for her it's less about the identity of the politics and more about the policy and she feels that bernie bernie's policies actually are incredibly valuable for women and especially for women of color mm-hmm yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, no, Back sure. to your rankings. We sure. Um, and my number two, uh, Amy, Amy Klobuchar. I, I, I like. Tell her. me more. She's she keeps it real. She talks. She's funny. She's a real person. Um, I don't know. I don't think she had like a great debate. Last I only I watched the first hour. I don't think she she did great, but she was she was really good in the other debates um, that I've seen. And she just she keeps it real. And she always has. Something to say. I feel like she's in her prime. She has the experience. She's not too old. She's not too young. She's kind of in that sweet spot. And she's 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 realistic, but she's also bold in a lot of other areas. And um, she's to me, she's kind of like between Buttigieg and Biden in terms of um, having the experience, but also um, being in her prime, like um, you know, intellectually and strategically. Like she's. Um, She's there, but I got to go with Bernie number one, just because I feel like he would have won in 2016. And the most important thing is winning. That's true. I got to say that, um, I, so that's don't my power think, I don't think that I could articulate, right uh, any of Amy Klobuchar's, um, p- like plans from what I've heard in the debates. She occupies a very moderate lane, a lane that often, um, shoots down progressive, or like quote unquote ambitious ideas, and I haven't heard her offer anything uh, that has inspired me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd be curious, you know, maybe uh, to hear more about it. Yeah, no, it's something to look into. Um, I also I don't think that it's a president's role at this stage to offer such detailed policy because at the end of the day, it gets things get worked out later, and you have to you know whatever policy you right now will change in in two years and you're going to have to tweak it. There's going to be different, um, you know, congressmen, women writing, writing it and people working on it and things are going to happen. And so I, I just, 
I kind of like it's it's more of a judgment uh, take, and I I like the way she carries herself. She seems authentic, um, and she seems like someone who wants to you know do, does the right thing. Um, so I mean, it's kind of like I know I've I've kind of pounded the table for like what's your ideas, what's your policy, but in this case, like I like a lot of these candidates, and I kind of want someone in there who I kind of just trust. Amen. And I think that's how a lot of people look at this, too, at the end of the day. Hopefully. Um, so we don't have time to go into the Australia fires. I really wanted to because that's kind of the big um, climate change news of the day. Yeah, I'd but love to come back on the show. Just I'll just read, man. Since September, 24 million acres have burned. That's an area larger than Portugal. 12 times as big as the area of California in 2018, the most destructive year for wildfires. Up to 30% of the koala habitat has been destroyed, which could mean a third of their population. And of course, koalas don't um, live anywhere else in the world. Um, There's a a map of where the fires are in Australia that's, you know, you think of Australia as this big landmass, so take out Portugal, but it's all really around the coast that people are, that's habitable. The, the middle of the uh, the country, Australia, which is a desert, that's not what's on fire. It's like the places where, you know, there's life. That's what's on fire. I'll like. um, so it's, it's truly heartbreaking. Yeah. A billion animals. Like, it's... man, just like to think if, you know, we could be we could be old and gray and there might be no more, you know, wild elephants in the world or wild right. kangaroos. Can you imagine that? And it's, and yeah, you know, we were talking about eco fatigue and like, Mm-hmm. This story honestly doesn't even feel that surprising to me, which is maybe the scariest part that I'm like be already becoming desensitized. And these these scale situations and frequency of these situations are just going to continue to rise. Just it's it's an onslaught, I think, with eco fatigue. And I want to I'll end on this note because I know uh, we got places to go. Um, but th- we started this podcast, as I mentioned the last time you were on. Um, as a way to, to talk about a subject that we don't talk about enough, climate change. I feel like in this year, that's changed. And I feel like people are talking about climate change. And now it's more important to figure out how to talk about that in a way that's not, that doesn't worsen eco-fatigue. It's not just about awareness anymore. It's about, I don't know, trying to find, find compelling, find sources of inspiration. You know, yeah. Like we mentioned with, you know, choose chicken over beef. It's like voting. You can vote every day by what you do. And if we all vote every day, like, yeah, your individual action, your behavior is insignificant, but so is your vote. But you still vote out of duty, you know? Yeah. I'll let you finish with that. That's great. I don't know. Just say something else. Uh, you want to plug your Instagram account? Are you still posting pictures of cats making puns or whatever? Sure, you can you can follow my uh, not so active these days, but certainly prolific at some time, uh, pun based Insta- uh, Instagram account, Lil Punny Foo Foo. That's L I L P U N N Y F O O F O O. I can't think of a better note to end. We got so much more to talk about, Gabe. Uh, it's always it's great talking to you uh, and yeah, having you on here. It's a blessing and a treat. Thanks for having uh, me back. Hey, anytime. Um, no, we. Uh, stuff to talk about but hey we gotta we gotta end it at some point it is saturday night after all so 
Uh, I'm starving. You hungry? Yeah, let's see. Okay, let's see. We'll get something. All right, bye, guys.